0: Thank you for listening to the Identity House Ministries podcast. We pray that today's teaching brings you in closer relationship with God the Father and empowers you to walk in your God-given identity. Come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so so much for the opportunity to gather uh, together, both in person and over the internet, and just uh, dive into your Word and seek out your truth and to uh, to glean something from this letter that you wrote to the church at Um, Sardis, Dad. We are so thankful that you are here in our midst and that your Holy Spirit is available to lead us and guide us into all truth. And so we just ask that you make that a reality in our lives tonight open our ears and open our hearts to what you would have to say, Dad. Um, That uh, we would be constantly moving towards looking more and more like you and becoming a more pure version of your son's bride. Uh, That's really what we want and that's what these letters to the church are all about. Um, So we honor you we dedicate the rest of this night to you and we ask that you just be here leading and guiding us. And uh, in the midst of your will is where we want to be. So we ask all these things, in the name of Jesus, and give you all the honor and glory that you are due. Amen. 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 Alright. So, like I said, Letters to the Church of Sardis. We're following up on last week's teaching to the letter of the Church of Thyatira. Um, as we have done in all of our letters thus far, this teaching tonight will be based on the same seven-point outline. Just to remind you guys of those outline elements in order. Uh, we have the addressee, the city to which, or the church of the city to which the, uh, the letter is addressed. We have the title of Christ, which is uh, every time the title of Christ is chosen, it's different in each of the seven letters. So we're going we're gonna to see what, what that's all about. We've got a, a commendation in each one of the letters to, to consider. Um, number four is the concerns, so the things that Jesus is concerned about in reference to the churches. Uh, and then there's always an exhortation, <clears throat> which Jesus exhorting the church to, uh, to continue or to change their behavior in some way. Um, six and seven are the promise to the overcomer and then the closing of the letter. So uh, I'm sure you guys remember all of those as we've been going through these, these four teachings prior to this one. So that's a little bit of review. Um, so let's just kind of jump in to the meat of the letter. Excuse me, the need of the letter, and we're just going to read it before we we start picking it apart. So, uh, this letter to the church of Sardis starts in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. And it goes all the way through verse 6, so let's just read it. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says these things. I know your works. That you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, but are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfected before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments. They shall walk with me in light, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not block his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the letter to the church at Sardis. So in following our outline, let's talk a little bit about Um, Sardis as a city and what that church may have been like uh, in the time when this was written and just some things that are characteristics of the city of Sardis because, as we found in all of our teachings thus far, um, the characteristics of the cities themselves often have a whole lot to do with the content of the letter. Um, So this will be a a good study. So (laughs) everything I'm about to read to you guys came from the... uh, International Standard Bible Dictionary about the city of Sardis, Uh, and then a couple other places. I kind of compiled this uh, from a couple different sources, I think like Encyclopedia Britannica and stuff like that. Um, So just to get an idea of what Sardis was like, uh, Sardis is one of the oldest and most important cities of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and until 549 B.C., it was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. It stood on the northern slope of Mount Tmolus, Its Acropolis occupied one of the spurs of the mountain. At the base of the mountain flowed the river Pactolus, which served as a moat, rendering the city practically impregnable. The hill upon which the Acropolis stood measures 950 feet high. So just to give you guys an idea of what's going on, the city of Sardis sat on this kind of plateau that was at the base of a mountain, and it was surrounded by a river and cliffs going downward on three of the four sides mm-hmm. okay and so the river at the bottom acted as kind of a moat and then the tall sheer vertical face cliffs acted as more defenses on top of that so um, <clears throat> The people who essentially lived in the city determined that it was basically impregnable because all they had to do was guard the one of the four sides that was open for access. If that makes sense, um, so it was supposed to be um, like you couldn't you couldn't conquer it because they had such good defenses, such natural good natural defenses in terms of the geography. Okay, so we're gonna keep going. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, th- so through, however, through the failure of um, the people in the city to be watchful, the Acropolis had been successfully scaled in 549 B.C. by a Median soldier, and then again in 218 A.D. by a Cretan. So basically, these armies found a way to get up these sheer scale walls, the, the cliffs that were... these. 950 feet walls that surrounded the city, and so they found a way to get up. And the city was conquered twice in that manner because they failed to watch uh, the sides of the city that you know that they determined were nobody can get past And mm-hmm. People got past, and they conquered the city in that manner. That happened twice. Um, okay, so because of its because of the city's strength during the Persian period, the satraps made the city their homes. That's fine. However, the city was burned by the Ionians in 501 B.C. It was quickly rebuilt and gained its importance. But in 334 B.C., it, was, it surrendered to Alexander the Great, who gave it independence. But its period of independence was brief. For 12 years later, in 322 B.C., it was taken by Antigonus. Yeah. So, there's more. The city was eventually destroyed in 17 A.D. by an earthquake, huh. uh, eventually taken over by the Romans. The idea you get is that it just keeps getting conquered like over and over and over again by different people. Um, So that's kind of of their their legacy, (laughs) the city of Sardis. Uh, Supposedly impregnable, but got conquered a bunch of times anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, The city was immensely wealthy, and its wealth was partly due to the gold which was found in the sand of the river Pactolis, which was at the base of the city. Um, and it was there that gold and silver coins were first struck. So the first ever gold and silver coins used in the entire world were minted in sarnes, which is pretty cool. Um, during the Roman period, its coins formed a beautiful series, and they are still found in abundance by the peasants uh, who till the fields around the city today. Um, this is an interesting thing that's going to tie into uh, the teaching Sardis was home to a temple of the goddess Chaibel, who in some legends is said to be the goddess mother of King Midas. If you remember King Midas, the guy who anything he touched turned to gold. Um, so uh, the city is associated with just vast wealth, vast wealth, like the first ever gold coins were minted there. Um, it's associated with King Midas, like there's an abundance of, of gold and wealth and all the kinds of stuff there. The city was actually... Do you have a question? Yeah. What was the name of the goddess? Bell. It's, it's spelled um, C-Y-B-E-L-E. C-Y-B-E-L. Yep. Is it Sybil? Yeah. It's pronounced Chybel, I believe. Yeah. Okay, then. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. All of that, all of that, to say that. Uh, I, so the next, the next thing I'm going to tell you guys, I, I found uh, from uh, the, this work, "Letters to Seven Churches" by William M. Ramsey. And so the name Sardis became uh, synonymous with pretensions unjustified, promise without performance, appearance without reality, mm-hmm. false confidence that heralded ruin they betrayed themselves by a lack of watchfulness and a lack of diligence. So, uh, like I said before, the city had everything going for it possible, vast wealth, vast stores of gold. It was supposedly impregnable just by the natural geography, like it couldn't be conquered. And yet, because they were so lackadaisical about keeping control and watch over their city, they were conquered over and over and over again. And so that's, that's kind of the legacy of the city of Sardis. And all of that is going to come into play as we talk about the content of the letter because it, it really directly relates to Jesus' concerns and exhortations for the church. Um, just a little piece about the name Sardis itself. It comes from uh, the Sardis stone. So the Sardis stone is actually mentioned several times in the Bible in terms of uh, the stones that make up the priestly garments, in terms of the stones that make up, uh, like, the walls of the New Jerusalem, all kinds of stuff. The thing that's interesting about it is that um, nobody really knows exactly what this, what the term this, the Sardis stone is referring to in terms of, like, well, it's, it's not a ruby, it's not, a, it's not an emerald, it's not you Know uh, a sapphire, it's like nobody really knows <laughs> what the stone was. There's conjecture, some people believe it's some, something, some people believe it's something else, but there's no like consistent thing. Like, well, well Sardis stone, <laughs> nobody knows, yeah. and that's kind of interesting. That's kind of interesting. All right, so let's move on to the next piece the title of Christ. So, uh, in Revelation 3 1, we've got uh, this verse, and unto the angel of the church of Sardis, write. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So this is the title that Jesus decides to use about himself. Um, and As we said in all of our teachings thus far, in all of the letters, the title of Christ that's used is borrowed from something in Revelation chapter 1. And so we see this uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Um, it says this, John to the seven churches which are in Asia... Grace be unto you, and peace from Him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. So this this little passage of scripture is pretty cool because it's a reference to the Trinity, right? He who was and who isn't, He who was and is and is to come. That's Father God. Uh, the seven spirits which are before His throne, that's presumably the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, faithful witness, first begotten of the dead, the Prince of kings of the earth. So that's, that's three, three individual entities that it, it references there, the Trinity, the Godhead. Um, so uh, but it's interesting this term, the seven spirits referencing the Holy Spirit. What exactly does that mean? Uh, why seven spirits? It's, it's, we don't really hear the Holy Spirit ever referenced that way. And so I kind of wanted to, to talk about what that's about. So there's actually this passage in um, Isaiah chapter 11, and I think a while ago, like maybe almost a year ago, Ron actually did a teaching on this, which was pretty cool. Um, but people, people reference this passage of scripture, and they, they call it the sevenfold spirit of God. And so this, this is what it says, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. Um, this, it says this is a, this is a, a messianic prophecy type passage. It says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so this is talking about when Jesus comes to prominence and comes to earth as the Messiah, the Holy Spirit will rest upon him. But it describes the Holy Spirit with seven different Phrases for seven different words. First is the spirit of the Lord. It's the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven, seven aspects of the Holy Spirit that are referenced in this in this verse. Um, and so uh, that may be what is being talked about in this passage in Revelation when Jesus uses this title, "He who hath the seven spirits of God." Well. In Isaiah chapter 11, it literally says, Jesus, the Messiah, will have the Holy Spirit in these seven forms. So that's probably what it's talking about. Uh, another thing that's interesting here, uh, there also may be a connection to the seven gifts given to the body of Christ in Romans 12, verse 6 through 8. Um, so you guys can look that up for yourselves. That's pretty interesting. Uh, but those gifts are only available to us through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So there's, right. there's always a connection here to the Holy Spirit just being described in different, different manners or uh, bequeathing different gifts, but there's always seven, which is really interesting. Uh, something that we've been studying and talking about in Brobel is just the number seven in the Bible consistently throughout Scripture is pretty much always referencing the idea of perfection and completeness. Okay, that the what that number symbolizes is those things perfection and completeness. So, so this idea of the seven spirits of God being before his throne could be referencing the idea that it's just the perfect and complete fullness of the Holy Spirit that's there. So, that's that's pretty cool. Just a lot of different things to think about, but. Uh, we're pretty sure that the seven spirits of God, it's not talking about seven angels, it's not talking about, you know, seven different beings, it's talking about the sevenfold completeness of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, and actually, these seven spirits of God are referenced two other times in the book of Revelation. Um, in Revelation 4, they're described as seven lamps of burning fire before the throne. Uh, and then in Revelation 5, 6, the seven spirits of God are described as seven horns and seven eyes of the Lamb that has been slain, standing in the midst of the elders. So, pretty crazy stuff. But uh, in both instances, there are, uh, there are like, it, it's the connotation that this is the Holy Spirit because, one, one, that it's the horns and the eyes that rest on the Lamb of God, right? The Lamb of God being Jesus. And then uh, that they are the lamps of fire burning before the throne, which is where the Holy Spirit is uh, in Revelation chapter 1. So that's pretty cool. Um, Let's move on to this, the second part of, uh, of this title of Christ. So we've got the seven spirits of God. It says he also has the seven stars. And so again, this is from Revelation chapter 12. We see it in verse 12 through 16. Um, we actually sang this tonight, which is awesome. Um, so it says, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned. I saw seven golden candlesticks And in the midst of the seven candlesticks. One like unto the son of man clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the the patch with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp his sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. That's just an unbelievable description. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable description. So in terms of Jesus having the seven stars, it says he holds them in his hand, right? And In uh, Revelation 1.20, we see that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Yeah. That's what they are. That's what they represent. It tells us that flat out. Um, So basically, the title that Jesus chooses to use here for himself uh, in this letter indicates that, one, he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He has it. It's available to him, belongs to him, like he's got it. Um, And he has ownership, and by extension, authority over the church, because the church belongs to him. He's got it. He's holding it in his hand. Because the seven angels represent, that's that's what they represent. Or the seven stars, excuse me. So that's pretty cool. Um, so this is going to be abundantly relevant to the content of the letter when we get to the, the concerns and the exhortation. So we'll see why that's the case as we go. So let's move on to our next point of our outline. Uh, usually, point three of our outline is the commendation. So let's... Let's jump in and read uh, what commendation is here. So, still in verse 1 of chapter 3, we'll just read it again. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Uh, <laughs> I don't hear a lot of good there. <laughs> Not much commendation. Uh, so, so let's, just, let's just start piece by piece. So, he says, I know thy works. This is something that Jesus has said to all five churches so far. I know your works. Okay? That in and of itself is not a commendation. All he's saying is, I know what you've been up to. <laughs> yeah. He's not commending them for anything. He's just saying, I know what you've been up to. I know what you've been doing. I know your works. Um, what's that? I so, so you did Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> what exactly is the commendation here? Because every letter follows follows this outline we've been talking about. Well, in the case of Sardis, there isn't one. there's no commendation. Out of all the seven letters we are at the fifth one, this is the first time that we've seen a letter that Jesus has nothing good to say about. Jesus has nothing good to say about this church That's not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. Um, so really, what does he say that they've got going for them? He says, you have a name and you are alive. Okay. Dang. Congratulations. <laughs> like, he's yeah. really trying hard.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Congratulations. Like, you've got a name and you're alive. You could say that about everybody, right? So he's really got nothing to say. Really got nothing good to say. Uh, so with that, I mean, point three of our is done. <laughs> there isn't one. Boom. No, no commendation. So, I mean, with that said, we can move on to concerns, and we'll find out <laughs> why he doesn't have anything good to say. Because there's reason. So, uh, <clears throat> the concerns. This verse again, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, and thou, that thou livest, and art dead. So they may have a name and they may, may be physically alive, but he's saying they're spiritually dead. Even though they're, they're alive and you can identify them, they're dead spiritually inside. Um, and so those, that's, like, <laughs> that's the body of his concerns. And so we're going to figure out, through diving into his exhortation, which is our next point in the outline, point five, we're going to figure out why he says that they are spiritually dead. There's stuff going on in this church that renders them essentially lifeless, with no good present. So let's move on to that, and we'll talk about it. I'm rolling through this. This is great. Oh, no. um, okay. So let's talk about this exhortation, because the commendation wasn't there, and the concerns were very short, <laughs> spiritually dead, even though you're physically alive. So. The exhortation can be found in uh, verses two through four, of chapter three. So this is really good. We're just going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to pick apart piece by piece. This is where, where, excuse me, this is where the real meat of the letter lies. So it says in verse two: "Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God." Remember, therefore, how that how Oh my gosh, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All right, so this is, this is a pretty, pretty action-packed exhortation here. So we're going to kind of pick it apart, and it's going to give us a great idea of why they're spiritually dead and why there's nothing good to say about them. So in verse 2, Jesus exhorts them concerning their works. So what's, what does he say? He says, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. So uh, their works, this is, we're talking about in terms of what their church is occupied with okay, what they're spending their time doing, the things that they have going on in their congregation, in their, in their midst, that's really what the, uh, the, the Greek word that's used here for works, that's what it's talking about. It's, it's what you're occupied with. So he's saying, the little bit of good that is left in what you what you guys have going on, it's dying out. The little bit that you got. It says strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die little bit that's good is in the process of dying, um, and so any good that's going to stay, it's, it's only going to stay if you focus on it and build it back up into what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, based on the context here, there were likely a lot of good stuff that the church may have once have, may have once had, that have already died completely, mm-hmm. already died completely. Uh, And we kind of get the idea from that because in the next verse, Jesus tells them both to remember and to repent. So they're supposed to remember something, things that are probably long since dead in their congregation. Good practices, good doctrine, good, just good things that God has for them. So that really is the next part of the exhortation in verse 3. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. So, this, it took me a while to figure this out, but this this right here is the thing that gives us an idea of what exactly um, the good works are that are dying and already dead, right? Because we need to figure that out. Jesus is telling them to like, remember the good things, strengthen the good things that are there, they need to know what those things are, right? And so he's telling them right here, he's telling them, remember how you have received and how you've heard. Okay, so what's what's something that the church would have received that they need to remember? I think that it's referencing one of two things or both. Those two things could be the gift of the Holy Spirit, or the gift of God's grace to salvation. Um, Because when you think about the idea of receiving from God, there's two pervasive concepts in the New Testament that are, like, by far, by far, referenced as gifts from God in the New Testament. The gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of grace. Okay. So those would be something that the church would have received. So Jesus is telling them, remember how you received these things. Remember how you received the Holy Spirit. Remember how you received the grace, my divine influence on your on your heart. That's what grace is all about. Remember. I think both of these things could be happening. Um, so... Then he goes on and says, uh, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. So what would they have heard? What's something good that they would have heard? The gospel message. The gospel message. Uh, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we talk about hearing something good in the context of scripture. It's the gospel message. The gospel message that effectuates faith in the life of the hearer. Right? So Jesus is saying, remember these things. Um, So, there's something really, really interesting about this, though. Jesus doesn't say, remember what you received and what you heard. He's not just saying, remember the Holy Spirit. Remember the grace I have for your life. Remember the gospel message. No. He says, remember how you have received and how you have heard I think that was super interesting. I even looked up the word how, just to make sure that that's what it means, and that is is what it means, that's exactly what it means. It's the idea of like, uh, the Greek word suggests like, remember by what means you received, or remember after what manner you received and heard. So he's not talking about the specific things that they received and heard, to remember them, that they exist, He's telling them to remember how they received the Holy Spirit, how they received grace, how they heard the gospel message. Um, so, the reason I think that's interesting is because okay, I can remember that. I can remember that we received the Holy Spirit. I can remember that I received grace. No, it's the church received the Holy Spirit. How? In what manner? Power, signs, wonders, miracles. Uh, following a time of like intense devotion and prayer and fasting, right? They could remember that they received the Holy Spirit and and for still have this part of it completely out of their mind. Like, yeah, we okay, I remember that we received the Holy Spirit. No, he's saying, remember how you received it. It came with power. God poured out His Spirit upon all flesh, like it talks about in Joel. Like, it was a powerful moment, right? Signs, wonders, miracles, they spoke in tongues so that everyone there could could hear and understand in their own language. Like, it was an incredible, incredible event that was Pentecost. Um, He's saying, remember how you heard the gospel, Right? It's not just remember what the gospel message is, it's remember how you heard it. Right, The gospel in the, the, uh, the original apostolic church following Pentecost was preached in truth and boldness. Mm. Right, It wasn't just, you know, here's the gospel message, do with it what you will. No, it's like this is everything. Truth and boldness, not backing down, not shying away from what you know, uh, the, the truth of the gospel is. So I think that's super interesting. Remember how. Don't just remember that you received them and heard the gospel. Remember how it happened. Uh, So what I think Jesus is dealing with here in terms of the church of Sardis is he's dealing with a church that has, one, quenched the Holy Spirit, and two, watered down the gospel. Mm. Not good. Neither of those are good things. They've quenched the Holy Spirit and they've watered down the gospel. That's what it seems to me. Uh, and there, look guys, there are plenty of commentators that you can read about all of this stuff. They say a variety of different things. Uh, some of them will be congruent with one another. Some of them will deviate based on their own, you know, uh, approach to the text and all kinds of stuff. This is just how I see it. Um, and you know, I invite you guys to please do your own research because I have no desire whatsoever at all to be your authoritative source for all of this stuff. <laughs> no desire. I do not want that responsibility. <laughs> so go, ser- go search it out for yourself, please, and come to your own conclusions and be convinced in your own minds. Yeah. But I think that's what it's talking about, a church that's quenched the Holy Spirit and a church that's watered down the gospel. <clears throat> so let's move on with, with this exhortation. Um So we're still in in verse 2 and 3. So he says, remember how you have received and how you've heard. And he says, hold, so we can go, okay, hold on. Let's go back to the beginning of verse 2, and we'll just read 2 through 3 again. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found that works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come upon thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So in light of presumably quenching the spirit, watering down the gospel, abandoning these things that were once good pieces of their, uh, of their church, what does Jesus tell them to do? Uh, he tells them to be watchful, right? Mm-hmm. He tells them to be watchful, to hold fast, which is just the idea of remaining faithful, uh, and to repent, To repent. So, this idea of being watchful, we're going to kind of carry that through some of the things that we talk about. So, just hold on to that a little bit. Um, But that directly plays into this thing. Verse 3 If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. This is an explicit reference, again, just like last week, to Christ's second coming. An explicit reference. I will come on thee as a thief. Thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. If you aren't watching. If you aren't watching, that's what will happen. Um, so why does Jesus ator, uh, implore them to be watching for his imminent return? Guys, this is super important. I think, I think this right here is some of the, the best pieces of application that uh, I think God impressed on my heart for this teaching. So... Their problem appears to be that they have lost hold of the fact that Jesus is actually going to return, right? Because when we let go of the eternal reality that Jesus is actually going to come back and judge the entire world, when we let go of that, when we let go of the idea that the end-time scenario, as depicted in Revelation, that that could literally come upon us at any time, when we let go of these ideas, then the weight and seriousness of the gospel, the necessity of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives, those things lose all of their importance. Mm -hmm. They lose all of their importance. So much about what it means to be a Christian has to do with the fact that Jesus is coming back for us. If he's not coming back for us then none of this means anything. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Really. And they have lost a hold of that. And you know when you lose hold of that stuff like what does the Holy Spirit's power matter in your life? Why do you need to experience and walk in that? Nothing's, nothing's happening after this, right? Right. Like if Jesus is not coming back to judge the entire world, <clears throat> why is the gospel message important? Everybody gets to heaven or, like, however you want to turn it, however people people think. Like, or we just turn to dust after this. The gospel message has no, like, urgency when you let go of the idea that Jesus is coming back and there is a life after this. And that we're supposed to be a part of that. So, in other words, to, like, put it the opposite way, Jesus has a remedy for quenching the Holy Spirit and watering down the gospel. And that remedy is for us to be ever ready and always watching and preparing for when He comes back. Only then, when we are watching, preparing, and making ready, only then will we will we realize the gravity of this situation that we're in uh, and return back to the how of the Holy Spirit being poured out and the how of the sharing of the gospel. That it's done in power, in boldness, in not backing down from the truth, because these things are the most important things in the world now that we have a grasp of this eternal perspective, right? So that's Jesus' remedy. That's why this idea of being watchful is so important. We are expecting this stuff to happen, and so we tailor our current life and our current focus to that. So, um, and Jesus goes on to say, after he talks about, if, after he talks about that, he says, "If therefore thou shalt not watch." I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. He goes on. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So, with that being said, I want you guys to think about what's there in that verse. But I actually want us to go flip back to a passage in Matthew chapter 25, because it's super relevant to what we're talking here talking about here. And then we're going to go to another passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. So in Matthew chapter 25, this is the parable of the 10 virgins. And it's verse 1 through 13. And I'm just going to read this, and then we'll talk about it. Um, so this is a parable of the 10 virgins, Matthew 25, 1. Give guys a second to get there. says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps, but no oil with them. But the wise took jars of oil with their lamps. While the bridegroom delayed, they all rested and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. The wise answered, No, lest there not be enough for us and for you. Go rather to those who sell it and buy some for yourselves. But while they went to buy some, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, again, same word Jesus used in Revelation 3, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So let's look over and read First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Similar ideas. So 1 Thessalonians 5. Says, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need that I write to you, for you know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the sons of the light and the sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ die for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we shall live (laughs) together with him. So comfort yourselves together and edify one another just as you are doing. Guys, both of these passages reference this idea of Jesus coming back unexpectedly at a time when we we don't know, right, as a thief in the night. And so, Uh, we need to be watching for and expecting Christ's return. It's only those people who are watching and expecting that it could happen at any time, those people will be the ones who are prepared for it, right? The parable of ten virgins. They weren't prepared because they weren't expecting that it could happen at any moment. That's why they weren't prepared. Um... This 1 Thessalonians passage literally uses the phrase, like, we know that he will come like a thief in the night, right? It's it's an unexpected thing. And so, (laughs) both of these passages and and the one in uh, Jesus' exhortation to the church at Sardis, both of these passages, or all three of them, deal with Jesus coming back as an unknown hour or a thief in the night. The context of this is that... (laughs) Uh, there are those who think that they have their salvation but don't people who think that they're saved but aren't. Uh that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in his exhortation. There are people in your church that think that they are saved that think that they are safe but they they that's not them. They don't have their salvation. Uh that's why you get to the next the last half of verse four. Jesus says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Mm-hmm. It's only those few individual people that Jesus knows personally. Those few individual people. Uh, those are the ones that are worthy to walk with him in eternity. What's he saying? Everybody else is out. That's harsh. Guys, that's why I think, <clears throat> I really feel like uh, this out of all the letters uh, is the most humbling and weighty of, of all the ones that, that I've, of all the ones that are here for me, for people like you and me, right? For people like you and me. We have to come to terms with the fact that there are churches everywhere. That have members that think they're saved, and they aren't. Yeah. There are churches everywhere that think, or people in churches everywhere that think that on that day that they're gonna like enter into the glory of the Lord, and He's sending them away. He's gonna say, "Depart from me, I never knew you." Mm. That is so like heavy. Uh, so this is not like a fun letter to read mm. at all, like at all. Guys, this is so, like, serious and so heavy. So, uh, this is, like, I just referenced this. There's this verse in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Mm. I don't think we take passages like that in Scripture serious enough. Yeah. Like, not even close. <laughs> not even close. Like, some of us take for granted uh, all of the people that are in our lives that, like, oh yeah, they're Christian. They're believer. Are they really? Mm. Seriously? Are they? Like, have we done everything in our power to make sure that, like, they know and experience on a personal level the truth of the gospel. That they have that faith that that is necessary. Because it's, it's not just about calling on the name of the Lord. It's not just about like doing things in his name. It's about knowing him personally and putting 100% of your trust and faith in him for your salvation. That's what it's about. So... <sighs> So that's, that's what Jesus' exhortation to the church in Sardis is. He's like, look, you guys are spiritually dead. I need you to repent. I need you to remember what this is all about. Because if you don't, if you don't go back to like the basics and remember, and you forget to watch and you aren't prepared, like I'm coming and you ain't going to be ready for it, and it's going to be too late. Serious stuff. So we can move on to point six of the outline, the promise to the overcomer. Uh, In verse five, it says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name of the book of life, uh, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So like we said before in the previous teachings, all of the promises to the overcomer in the seven letters, each one is a promise related to our place in eternity, to the church's place in eternity, right? To uh, to how you stand in relation to salvation. So in this case, uh, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying if you overcome, if you are, if you are one of these people that like, remembers the how of what, you, of, of what you received and what you've heard. If you're one of these people that uh, is counted worthy, one of these few names, if, if you like return back to where you're supposed to be, the promise is uh, that you are assured of your place in his kingdom. You are assured of it, right? I will not blot out your name from the book of life. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. That's a great promise. Mm-hmm. That's a great promise. Um, so we see we see here two, two uses of the word name, right? It's, it's, it's all about your name. Whether or not your name is in the book of life. Whether or not Jesus will confess your name before Father God. Um, and so this name idea pervades the letter. Right, we found it in verses one and verses four. Um, so, actually, let me turn back right quick. So, in verse one, it's uh, "I know your works that you have a you have a name, and you are alive, and you are dead." Right, and then is it dying? No, that's what I was checking. Okay. And I'm not, oh no, we're good. We're All right. good. Sweet. All right right, fifty-six percent.
1: Awesome.
0: Yeah, so verse 1, it talks about how the church has a name, congratulations, <laughs> that, they're, that they're alive and that they're dead. And then verse 4, you had a few names, even in Sardis, that have not sold their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So this name idea pervades the letter. And so kind of the way that I see it of, of why this is the case, I think Jesus is highlighting the fact that it's your individual name that matters. Your individual name. You, as an individual, is your name written in the book of life? Is your name one that Christ will recognize as one that's worthy? Is your name one that he will confess before his father? Right? Guys, we cannot ride on the coattails of anyone else's faith for salvation. It has to be ours and ours alone. We have to be the ones that possess it individually. Okay? You can't ride your parents' coattails for their faith, your family, your friends, your pastors, your leaders, uh, your church, the whatever like church network you're a part of, whatever denomination you're a part of, like just because they preach the gospel and like have salvation, like the true gospel and, and the faith for salvation. Uh, as a part of, like, who they are doesn't mean it automatically gets translated to you, right? You have to have it for yourself. You can't ride their coattails. At the end of the day, your salvation comes down to you and your personal relationship with Christ. I think that's what it's all about in this. So then we get to the closing. Uh the closing is the same in all, all, uh, all seven letters. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Guys, again, this means everybody. This is relevant to everybody. Personal application. There's churchwide application here. Um, this statement is found in all seven letters. So that means this is for you guys each and every individual person this letter is for you. Not only that, it's for every church you've ever been a part of. How much have the churches you've been a part of quenched the Holy Spirit? How much of the churches you've been a part of, how much have they watered down the gospel? How much have they forgotten the grace that God has poured out on them for salvation? Um, so, since we have like all of those levels of application, now we can talk about the last level of application, which we touched on uh, in the letter to Thyatira last week. Same kind of thing. The prophetic implications for here, this is the, the controversial viewpoint that we keep sharing in terms of like, the prophetic application, right? Um, so, last, last week I talked about uh, just kind of a review of church history, and we've got the same, the same thing, right? Uh, the review of church history: the first, the first uh, era of, of the church after being born at Pentecost was the era of the, of the building. They were building up the church through apostolic structure. Uh, that was followed by mass church persecution perpetrated by emperors of Rome. That era of church history was characterized by persecution. Uh, the following era was characterized by the church being married to the state, starting with Constantine. Uh, and the subsequent uh, Byzantine Empire and stuff like that—how the, the church and the state were essentially uh, married together, and state officials were making church decisions and stuff like that. Like uh, the era of church history that followed that was the kind of the era when Catholicism took hold—the the papal church era under the authority of the pope, the Holy Roman Empire, stuff like that. Um, and so going through that that church history like that, and you can see the era. It's like That's that's how history lays it out. And so the way that the letters to the church are, are ordered, um, it presumably matches up with that, right? The letters to the church at Ephesus describes in many ways what the apostolic church era was like. And the letters to the church at Smyrna, very directly, I mean, that one's one of the most obvious ones, very directly describes what that era of church history was like under all that persecution. The letter to the church at Pergamos uh, describes in many ways the era of church history of the church being married to the government. Uh, we talked about this last week, the era of church history that was characterized by papal authority, like the medieval church, the, the Catholic, that, that, that Catholic era of church history was very much, very much like described by the content of the letters to the Church of Thyatira. And so these things match up. And so it seems as though this, this prophetic implication actually works. And so in terms of this letter that we're studying today, the church letters to the Church of Sardis, what's the era of church history that came after like uh, the Holy Roman Empire type uh, church era, under papal authority and the dominance of, the, of Catholicism? It was the Reformation, mm-hmm. right? The Reformation, process of Reformation. It started, you know, kind of in the, the 1400s, and, you know, there were things happening and, and stuff that were kind of leading to it, but most people point uh, the start of the Reformation uh, to 1517, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, and nailed on the door of the Wittenberg College, right? Um, and so <laughs> if, if this prophetic outline matches up with these letters to these eras of church history, like... How is it that the letter to the church of Sardis is relevant to the Reformation? <laughs> wow, like so. What we've got to realize is the Reformation, like, did a lot of amazing things in terms of uh, reforming the heresies that were rampant through the Catholic Church, like the selling of indulgences, the papal authority, the I mean, uh, they reaffirmed like the priesthood of all believers. They uh, they helped get the Bible translated into English so that everybody could now read the Bible. That it wasn't it wasn't reserved for priests only. Like they reaffirmed the doctrines of salvation by faith alone. Right? Uh, that was that had been lost in in Catholic tradition stuff like that. But we but what you have to realize is out of that out of those awesome things that were done in the Reformation, uh, that was like the conception of the denominational church. All of these different denominations that we see, like, you know, out of Catholicism came Protestantism, but then Protestantism fractured into a million pieces Mm -hmm. in terms of the denominations. Mm -hmm. It really did, like, you know, I don't know all the different denominations, but I mean... Episcopalian, Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian—like, there's so many. Primitive Baptist. Primitive Baptist—that's a much newer one. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and you even have denominations within denominations. There's like Southern Baptist, and there's like ten different kinds of Presbyterian churches, Mm -hmm. and like several different kinds of Methodist churches, and like. It's crazy how fractured the body of Christ became after this point. Like, at least under, under Catholicism, they were united. Right. To be fair, they were united. There was not a good unity in any way, shape, or form. Like, there was so much death perpetrated by the Catholic Church, and it was just not a good time. Um, but, so, I mean, that's, that's what the Reformation birthed. It birthed so much good... But there was so much division that came out of it in so many ways in, form, in the form of the denominations. denomination. So how is this letter to the Church of Sardis relevant to the denominational church? Well, one definition of the word denomination from the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary literally is a name or designation. So what would Jesus say to the, to the denominational churches? You've got a name and you're alive. Congratulations! Right? Jeez. Crazy. <laughs> How many denominational churches that you guys know place more importance on their particular denominational catech- catechisms and their specific doctrines than they do on the gospel message itself? Mm. Right? So that's what you run into with denominations. Uh, it turns out that a large majority of the various church denominations out there, is, and so they've abandoned the ideas that are here in Scripture about Christ's second coming, which is exactly what's insinuated by this letter to the church of Sardis. Another piece of this, the corporate church model that you all of, all of us know and that we've witnessed on, on a day-to-day basis that pervades the denominational churches lends itself to a watered-down gospel. It really does. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his imminent return, the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing signs, wonders, miracles, these are radical and fringe ideas in the context of broader society and culture, right? Radical fringe ideas do not keep butts in the seats and collection plates full right it just doesn't Mm -hmm. uh i have a friend i will not name him (laughs) for reasons uh but we were talking recently about all this stuff and he's like you know what you know what the corporate church gives people these days it's not the milk of the word it's not even the meat of the word it's candy Mm -hmm. it's candy it's a bunch of fluff to keep people in the seats and keep them coming back Mm -hmm. dang that's harsh yeah so, sir, if you're listening to this video, like you know who you are. Thank you for giving me that. Because it's so true. It's so true. That's heavy stuff. Um, so, some more pieces that I just come up with. I mean, you guys, to be fair, you guys can dispute me on any of this. Like, I would love to talk about it. This is how I see it. I think there's abundant evidence for what I'm talking about. Um, the denominational church model has for centuries been characterized by each individual church having one pastor doing the majority of the spiritual heavy lifting. Right. In many ways, Christianity and doing church has become a spectator sport, uh, which is all about parishioners riding on the coattails of their pastor's faith. Right? Yeah. That's what you see. That's what you see when you go into the large majority of denominational churches in America, and I'm not saying that non-denominational churches are any better most of the time because non-denominational is a denomination in and of itself. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they're just as bad a lot of the time. <laughs> we don't know. What's the what's the the Tim Hawkins thing? A yeah, non-denominational church, church is just a a Baptist church with a cool name, and the pastor preaches barefoot. Yeah. <laughs> our worship leader has tattoos. <laughs> yeah, our worship <laughs> leader has tattoos. We're called Tapestry. Yeah. <laughs> so funny yeah. So, so, so often they're not any better. I mean, I'm glad we can add some like humor to this because it was pretty heavy and serious. But, um, like that was a reality. The the one pastor being in being in charge and like you know, uh, doing all of the spiritual heavy lifting in the church. That's been pervasive all the way back to the Reformation. I mean, this is a crazy thing, but you can look this up and verify it. Even Martin Luther and John Calvin, two of the fathers of the Reformation, they supported putting to death lay people that preached in public outside of the Protestant church's authority. That's crazy. I mean, we venerate these guys as fathers of the Reformation, but they held to these doctrines of, of, like, I mean, this is kind of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that we talked about in Ephesus and Pergamus, right? Of, of the pastors holding all authority and lording it over, like, congregation. And so there's a lot of not good stuff that came out of it. Um, so, you guys can take that for what you will um, and just kind of Try to figure out and, and match up in your own mind. Be convinced in your own mind. Does this letter fit what you see in terms of that era of, of church history that was birthed out of the Reformation, the denominational churches? Maybe it does. It sounds like it does to me, obviously, because I came up with all of those evidences. But, um, you know, I, I want to leave it up to you. Figure that out. Determine that for yourself. Um, now I want to talk about something that we touched on last week, and this will, be, this will kind of be the end. Um, so... We talked about this last week. Uh, There's some differences between the last four letters and the first three letters, in terms of the seven. Uh, The first three had no mention of Christ's second coming. The last four all have an explicit reference to Christ's second coming. The first three letters have the promise to the overcomer uh, included as a postscript, after the closing. right? The last four letters, which we're in the midst of right now, all of those have the promise to the overcomer included inside the body of the letter. So there's these architectural, structural differences between the first three letters and the last four. Um, As we talked about last week, some scholars propose that the implication of this is that the historic eras of church history represented by the first three letters have all ended. Or will end prior to Christ's second coming that the eras of church history represented by the last four letters will continue all the way until Christ return. So the implication is that if this letter to the church at Sardis actually does prophetically profile the denominational church, that the denominational church will last and be in place until Christ returns. Mm. Um, that would make sense based on the content of the letter because he says, watch and wait till I come. I will come upon you like a thief in the night. That makes sense. Um, So I want to kind of end with some something that I found that was really interesting. Um, This was from the this this little thing I'm about to read was published in the Missionary Herald uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, in August of 1911. So. There's this guy, Professor Butler of Princeton University, who went and did like some architectural digs in the city of Sardis, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually recovered the marble throne of the Bishop of Sardis, huh. and which is kind of crazy. <laughs> marble, I see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and he said, looking upon, looking upon it, the message of Sardis, the message to the church at Sardis came to mind. Uh, there was, so this, he recalled a fact of current history while he was there, like while he was there doing the digs, he found this out, that um, there's this quote, I'm going to read the quote, it says, yonder among the mountains overhanging Sardis, there is a robber gang led by the notorious Chekir Jali, he rules in the mountains. No government force can take him. Again and again, he swoops down like an eagle out of the sky in one quarter of the region or another. From time immemorial, these mountains have been the haunts of robbers. Very likely it was so when Revelation was written. So this this idea that the city of Sardis was susceptible always to robbers swooping in and stealing and plundering. And guys, that's exactly... That's exactly the idea that Jesus is presenting it here. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when. Be prepared. And so it's just crazy that there's this idea that modern day, well, modern in 1911, but modern day Sardis, uh, the situations and circumstances surrounding the city itself, like, were still relevant to Jesus' message for the city, like, just as a representation of what he had to say. And so, I just want to encourage you guys, like, this has really, really made me, like, just sit down and take a big, long pause and think about a lot of stuff. Yeah. Because the gravity of the situation is really intense. Like, it's really intense. Um, the idea pervades scripture that Jesus could come back at any time. Are you ready? And are you ready to do what it takes to make sure that everyone you know and love is ready and that everyone you come into contact with like it's happening the thief is coming the bridegroom is coming back to fetch her bride are you going to be prepared thanks for listening to this message on the Identity House Ministries Podcast if you enjoyed today's message follow us on Facebook and Instagram we'd love to keep in touch with you be blessed today family